Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 6 of the Pop Punk Project. My name is Mike, your co-host. I'm joined today with my buddy Keenan. How's it going, Keen? It's good, Mike. Excited to be back once again. Can't believe it's already episode 6. On this episode, we will be discussing Taking Back Sunday's album, Tell All Your Friends. We just want to take a quick second before we launch into this episode to thank all the people who've supported us the last couple weeks. We've had a crazy amount of feedback from our fan base, and we're excited that people are enjoying it and continuing to tell us how much fun they're having. We want to especially thank our very first patron, a good friend of ours, Eric Caputo. Eric, thanks for believing in us. We appreciate it. We're going to put that $4.10 to great use, we promise. That's right, Keenan. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Eric's actually your roommate. Is that correct? That's right, Mike. He is. You're not mistaken at all. So, he has to put up with you recording every week, right? He does. He's currently upstairs hiding in his room. I forced him to go to bed. So we probably owe him money. Tons of money, yeah. Anyway, thanks, Pooty. We appreciate it. Why don't we stage dive in? All right, let's stage dive in. This album, Tell All Your Friends, is Taking Back Sunday's debut studio album. It was released March 26, 2002, so we're keeping in line with band's debut breakthrough albums. It sold 2,000 copies in its first week and was eventually certified gold in the U.S. Is 2,000 copies, is that a lot, Mike? Well, by today's standards, yes, but by 2002 standards, I guess... It might be on the lower side, but for a band that was putting out their first album, I'd take it. Yeah, it was only the first week, but I wasn't sure if that was meant to be a big number. It sounds like a very small number to me. But again, it did eventually become a big success. Right, and I'm not sure exactly how they actually calculated album sales back in the day, because I'm sure with albums like this, there were probably a ton of press releases sent to radio stations and college stations across the country so i don't know if they included those in the final count of those first week numbers but 2000 units moved is nothing to shake your head at to this day it's taking back sunday's best-selling album of all time it is victory records longest running release on the billboard heat seekers and independent album charts charting for 68 weeks on the former and 78 on the latter so that's a big deal I guess it was record-breaking in that respect. That surprised me that it's their best-selling album of all time because if you had asked me to bet money, I would have said Where You Want to Be or Louder Now would have taken that title. But I guess for the album that's been around the longest, it has the most time to keep selling, you know? The lineup during this album was singer Adam Lazara, who's been in the band since the beginning, guitarist and vocalist John Nolan, guitarist Eddie Reyes, bassist Sean Cooper, and drummer Mark O'Connell. There were a bunch of lineup changes leading up to this album. They went through several iterations of the band and eventually settled on this one, and this was the one that seemed to be the most successful, seemed to produce the best quality content. And it made me think, a lot of these guys who were in and out of the band ended up being in famous bands of their own, the one being Jesse Lacey, who ended up starting the band Brand New and his lead singer Brand New. And it made me think of Fall Out Boy and how 
they came up in this underground Chicago hardcore scene and all these famous bands came from there and they were all very good friends with each other and they would write music together and they were in and out of lineups together. This seems like it's the Long Island, New York punk emo breakout scene. Yeah, I would agree with that. It seems like there were a couple different scenes back in the day. Obviously, we have Fall Out Boy out of Chicago, and we saw when we discussed Take This to Your Grave, they had interactions with members of Rise Against. And I think when you talk about Taking Back Sunday, you can't really discuss them without also bringing up Brand New. So obviously, Jesse Lacey was the original bassist in this band, was never recorded with the band, but was, I guess, a founding member. And then John Nolan, who left the band for a couple years and came back eventually, also was in other bands like Straylight Run. So there's a cobweb that's formed out of the Long Island music scene with pop punk, I guess you could say. Yes, yeah, it's just really cool how these different pockets of pop punk, punk hardcore were forming all around the country. And it does make me think that maybe it's helpful to have people around you that are trying to do the same thing. You're almost encouraging each other to make it and to make new music and to make content. It just seems like it's this built-in support system, which I thought was cool. You definitely keep one another motivated. There's always somebody that's going to be a little bit hungrier than you. So whether it's internally or externally, that little competition, like we saw when we discussed Pete Wentz and Pat Stump, if you have that other person that you're kind of competing with trying to better yourself in comparison to, it's not a bad thing in my opinion. Taking Back Sunday previously released a couple of short demos. They were doing a bunch of touring, I think small venues up and down the East Coast. And at the time, they were renting rehearsal space in Lynnhurst, New York, where they wrote and demoed a lot of their songs. And then they eventually wrote and recorded this album at the Big Blue Meanie Recording Studio in Hackensack, New Jersey. Hackensack. Great town. Love it. Sounds like Hacky Sack. That's right. Your favorite pastime, right? Uh, no. I can't get more than um, three bumps. <laughs> more than three bumps? Three volleys. <laughs> Is that how it's recorded in bumps? <laughs> I don't know. It's always hard to get the perfect hacky sack. I think that was a big thing when we were younger. Like, you either had a loose beanbag or a tight beanbag. Do you know the movie She's All That with Freddie Prinze Jr.? I do. It's a great rom-com. Do you know the hacky sack scene? Best scene in the movie. It's a great scene in that movie. So unlike Fallout Boy's production routine where Patrick and Pete were at each other's throats all the time and they were essentially competing over the lyrics and trying to perfect it and critiquing one another on a daily basis to the point where it got super heated at times like we saw in that album. The guys in this band were actually extremely collaborative and supportive. And I had read before that the lead singer, Adam Lazara, and the lead guitarist at the time, John Nolan, they shared an apartment and they would often stay up till 5 a.m. sharing compositions, sharing riffs, sharing lyrics, and just building upon that together in a very constructive way. And so I thought that was cool. It made me feel like these guys were a little more in it together. And their process seemed a little less chaotic to me. That is interesting because I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to having roommates. And when you go to college, people always tell you, don't 
make your best friend your roommate because you'll hate each other by the end of the year. But for them to live together and still be able to have that compatibility to make this kind of music, I think it only helped them in the long run because knowing that Adam and John had formed that relationship from day one, it kind of had a lasting impact on this band's music. As far as influences, around that time, Taking Back Sunday lists emo bands, the Get Up Kids, and the Promise Ring as some of the biggest influences of this album. And I would say, Mike, up to this point, the majority of the bands that we've listened to, I would categorize them as pop punk with some emo foundations and some emo flavor to them. This is the first band that I would consider to be a quote-unquote emo band. For people like us that probably didn't listen to the Get Up Kids and the Promise Ring when they were actually putting out music, Taking Back Sunday was more emo than pop punk. They kind of had more layered vocals. They had a singer and a screamer. And it wasn't as radio-friendly, I guess you could say, as some of the other pop-punk bands at this time. But that doesn't mean that it was worse music. In fact, I think that kind of engraved Taking Back Sunday, at least from my perspective, as one of my favorite bands from around this time. Unfortunately, Mike, this album came out in the exact same month and year as Simple Plans, No Pads, No Helmets, Just Balls. The album came out in March 2002. So we've actually covered a lot of the headlines of the day already. And I don't want to reuse them. So I guess this segment, Mike, we can call what else in the world is going on here? If you didn't get your fill of children dying in fires. Canadian children dying in fires. That's right. Let's be specific. So we were were reaching. But that being said, check out this news, Keenan. March 12th, the DreamWorks animated film Ice Age premieres. Do you remember that one? Of course. Who can forget it? Ray Romano? I love Raymond. (laughs) Everybody loves Raymond. The squirrel always trying to get the nut. Oh, man. So relatable. Here's some good topical punk news. March 18th, the band The Ramones are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I would imagine that a lot of the bands we discussed during this podcast would list The Ramones as one of their big influences. So that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I would probably say The Ramones and The Clash are kind of the godfathers of punk, if not pop punk. On March 24th, the 74th Academy Awards were held and A Beautiful Mind wins for Best Picture and Ron Howard also won for Best Director. It's the movie about John Forbes Nash, right? Yeah, that's right. He throws the desk out of the Princeton dorm room window. Is that a Princeton movie? Is that like a big thing at Princeton? I think it's a pretty big claim to fame, yeah. I think they point out where that scene was allegedly filmed during the campus tours. So do you know if it was filmed on campus? I I honestly don't know. I think portions of it were filmed on campus, yes. I think Russell Crowe was on campus for a while in the buildings. I think there were some exterior shots in that movie. It's pretty cool. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. What do we always say? Grr? That's right. Yeah, we always say grr. But yeah, and then Ron Howard, little old Opie, went on to become a pretty great director, so go figure. And then March 30th, this is some sad British news, Mike. Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother of the United Kingdom, a.k.a. the current Queen Elizabeth's mother, dies at the ripe old age of 101. God save the Queen. There must be something in the water at the palace over there because I think Queen Elizabeth 
now is approaching 101 as well. So, yeah, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the absurd amount of wealth and being pampered your entire life and having <laughs> castles to live in. But you're right, having no obligations other than to put a sword or a scepter above somebody's shoulders as you're knighting them. <laughs> this might be a little polarizing for our British audience, Mike. We love the royal family. Let's get that straight. We love the United Kingdom. Yeah, I, I do. But 101, it's hard to feel too bad. No, that's a good age. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to make it to 101, let's yeah. be honest. I'll be happy with like 61. Oh, dude. 61 would be... Then we're just playing with borrowed time. <laughs> <laughs> and all we had to do was just be a queen. I know that you loved this album back in the day, Mike, and you still love it today, I'm pretty sure. But what was your experience with it originally? So it was actually at our day camp back in the day. I first heard one of our counselors at the time, Andrew Dunn, was listening to this on a CD player. He was in the band Stars Fall In that we were huge fans of, the local band at the time. He was. Believe it or not, it took us until episode six to get to our first Stars Fall In reference, but... Andrew Dunn was a drummer of that band, and he was listening to this album on a CD player. I guess I asked him what he was listening to, and he gave me the headphones, and the first song I heard was You Know How I Do. So we'll get to this, Keenan, but that So Sick, So Sick of Being Tired was permanently engraved into my brain, and I just thought that this was a cool band. That band, Stars Fall In, those were a bunch of guys who went to camp with us, and now that I really think about it, all those guys were huge fans of Taking Back Sunday. And I think you can hear it. I remember they were very sort of this unique emo sound and they do sound a lot like Taking Back Sunday. Yeah, that's true. I know they were influenced by bands like Taking Back Sunday and Smashing Pumpkins. And if you lived in the Montgomery County PA area back in 2004, 2005, if you didn't see Stars Fall In Live, then you just missed out. Their live shows at the Maple Glen Brouhaha. The Brouhaha, Thunderbird Lanes. Those were the Montgomery County venues, baby. I remember the Brouhaha show was, it was a coffee shop in like a strip mall. That's exactly right. And we tore that place down. Oh man, it was burnt to the ground when we left. Those were the kind of concerts when your parents didn't mind taking you because it was five minutes from your house. And free and... Nobody really showed up. And all underage kids, nobody was drinking, nobody was doing anything bad. The famous line from that concert, though, if you can call it a concert, we'll call it a show. But at the end of that brouhaha set, Stars Fallen actually tipped over the drum set. Everybody went crazy. Yeah. And the employee of brouhaha, which, (laughs) poor guy, I think their intention probably was to get kicked out, but... People were starting to kind of form a pit, which I don't know. I don't know. It was just weird because we were all like little kids <laughs> forming a pit. This was like a Panera Bread type situation. It was exactly like a Panera Bread. It was like, I couldn't believe they had this concert held there. Think of a Starbucks, just not Starbucks. It was just like maybe eight or ten little square tables and they moved those aside to set up their performance space. Right. So... Everybody started going crazy, and this poor guy, who apparently was still on duty at this time, came out into the middle of the room and just screamed, This is an effing coffee shop! (laughs) He was the one who let them in. I censored that, but 
He was pissed. And after that, I think everybody just kind of left because it was like, what more can you do? Right. Exactly right. So, yeah, I, I think maybe eventually we'll have to do a review of Stars Fall NEP from back in the day. But Absolutely. Anyway, shout out to Andrew Dunn because he was the first one I heard Taking Back Sunday from. When did you first get your start into the Taking Back Sunday scene? When did you first hear this album? I think it was around that same time. I knew a lot of their popular songs. I knew Cute Without the E. I knew You're So Last Summer. But I didn't really get into this album until a little bit later. I think at that time, their sound may have been too quote-unquote emo for me. I thought it was a little too whiny. I know back then I was more into the the Simple Plan, Good Charlotte, Blink-182, upbeat pop punk. This was a little too dark for me at the time. But I've since become a humongous fan of this album. And I've actually seen them live recently. I saw them last November. So nine, ten months ago, I was at their show for my birthday. It was actually pretty awesome. A bunch of people showed up. I just sent this random text out saying, hey, I'm thinking about going to this Taking Back Sunday show. They're performing the entirety of Tell All Your Friends. And 15 to 20 of my friends ended up showing up. And so we had a great time. I got right in the thick of the pit. Special shout out to my brother Shane and my friends Tyler, Tommy, and Lauren, who all got after it in the pit with me while everybody else was sort of hanging in the back. That was a really fun show. And so recently I've gotten a lot more into them. Not to um, toot my own horn, but I was invited to that show. I couldn't make it. But they were doing a tour where it was like they would do two nights in every city, I think. And one night they would play Tell All Your Friends. The next night they would do Where You Want to Be in the entirety. But you didn't know which album you were going to get to see until you actually went to the show. So What they would do was they would, at every show they did, they did the entirety of Tell All Your Friends. And then before the first night, they would flip a coin. And if it was heads, they would also do Louder Now. And if it was tails, they would do Where You Want to Be. And then the second night, they would just do the one they didn't do the first night. It was really cool. Okay. So either way, you're guaranteed to hear Tell Your Friends, and then you get to hear one of their other great albums. Pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And they're great performers to this day. It's fun to do it with a big group of people to kind of relive the days when you would really listen to Take Back Sunday. Right. I was able to see them once live myself, and it was when I was at college at Penn State, and they were just at Rec Hall, which was where volleyball games were played. So it was kind of just like a local gym. But like you said, they were great performers. That was right after John Nolan rejoined the band, I believe. Oh, wow. So that was a pretty big time. They were just great, and they were interactive. They were engaging. So they remind me kind of how we discussed with Newfound Glory that there's still a band that's really worth seeing live if you have the chance to. So the themes in this album, I know that the majority of the lyrics were inspired by very specific personal experiences that the band members had leading up to it. And I want to say there are probably two themes that they hit again and again. And it's really about relationships ending, both close friendships and also romantic relationships. Those are the two things that they address over and over again. And it's all about the betrayal associated with those two things, figuring out who you are afterwards, picking up the pieces and moving on. And so there's a lot of angry, angsty songs about people that were very close to you that you now no longer want to associate with and who you now hate. Friendships ending, relationships ending, and then 
probably the best songs on this album have a perfect blend of both of those things. That's right. I think it's literally split 50-50. It's either about a relationship ending poorly or one of your best friends who is now your enemy. It's probably the first time that we've seen priority on losing friends, I guess, rather than girlfriends or boyfriends. Yeah, it's sad. It's kind of a sad album when you really dive into the lyrics and dive into the songs. Some other fun tidbits. Mike, you ready? Sure. Let's see if you knew any of these. So as we mentioned, this was Taking Back Sunday's first real experience recording a full-length album together. When they showed up at the studio, they showed up without a drum set because they just assumed that the studio was supposed to supply one. (laughs) And so the audio engineer, when they showed up and did not have one of their main instruments, he said, no major studio in America has their own drum set. you got to be effing kidding me. And basically lost it on them day one. See, I don't agree with that at all. If you're a major studio in America and you don't have a drum set, like, right? Doesn't... I mean, I assumed the same exact thing. I assumed that they would have all the instruments you would need. My guess was that bands would want to play their own instruments, but right. I just assumed they had, you know, like a shelf of guitars if you wanted to use a different guitar and they had different floor toms and different snares if you want to try things out. But apparently that was not the case. So and I don't just, know. you're just paying them to... For what? I think the audio recording equipment and the space. These albums didn't even need the audio quality that they might have had from studio time. I know. Like, they probably would have been better off having nice guitars and a nice drum kit. I know, yeah. So, Taking Back Sunday, I'm on your side, man. Yeah, I am too. (laughs) Screw the recording studio. So, what else was going on when they were recording this album? So, here's another fun little tidbit. Nolan's sister, Michelle, sang on two of the songs in the album. So whereas Simple Plan and Newfound Glory, they brought in all these pop-punk all-stars like Mark Hoppus and Matt Skiba, uh, the best that Take Mac Sunday could do was the lead guitarist's sister. Freaking losers. Kind of sad if you think about it, but... That's kind of awesome, because I'm sure... I have no idea, but I'm guessing Michelle probably doesn't get to sing on Taking Back Sunday albums these days, so... Probably not. That's pretty cool that she was there from the get-go, being able to sing on a couple of these tracks. Yeah, it's nice to see two siblings working together, you know? Of all the broken relationships on this album... (laughs) Nice to see one intact. It's nice that this brother and sister still gets along with one another. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the guys in Taking Back Sunday didn't burn every single relationship in their lives. Song number one, You Know How I Do. In this song, we hear the first example of something that Taking Back Sunday has largely introduced and I think perfected. And it's, it's this alternating vocalist setup where the lead singer will sing a couple lines and then John Nolan, the lead guitarist, will sing a couple lines. It's almost like a call and response. But they're not often relating to each other. They're often going on sort of different tangents and different paths. They aren't that similar. One will be screaming, the other will be singing melodically, vice versa. 
And so it's kind of a different dynamic than what we've seen in the past where the only interaction between singers is harmonizing. It's not like that with Taking Back Sunday. It's almost as though for a lot of these songs, they are singing two entirely different sets of lyrics. They are. It's interesting. It's kind of cool. It's fantastic. And listening to it with the naked ear, you probably miss a lot of what they say. Wait, did you say listening to it with the naked ear? Yeah. Is that a, is that a saying? Like the naked eye, like no. Well, how do you listen to something? I morphed it. I morphed naked eye into naked ear. I made, I made it my own thing. What's the alternative to a naked ear? Untrained ear. That's the alternative, or that's a synonym? No, no, no. Yeah, synonym. The untrained eye. So if you look at something with an untrained eye, it's like you're not seeing the full picture. Wait, isn't seeing something with a naked eye just seeing it without something altering your sight? Yeah, without bias or without like... (laughs) Okay, okay, yeah, all right. (laughs) It makes sense. I know, it's just funny the way it's... Okay, excuse me. The untrained ear. Okay. What I meant to say was, if you're just listening to this as you're hearing it, you're probably going to miss a lot of what they're actually singing, screaming, saying, etc. So, Oh yeah, no doubt. I kind of had a great time going back and reading through these lyrics because there was a lot of stuff that I missed the first time around. I was thinking the exact same thing. I think out of all the albums we've talked about so far, this is one where I learned the most lyrics, the most lyrics I've never heard before, I was able to pick up for the very first time. And I didn't realize how much I had missed, partly because they're singing over each other half the time, and also partly because it's just not as clear vocally and lyrically as the other albums we've listened to. So yeah, I think we've gained a lot out of actually reading through these. And I think that's by design too. They definitely wanted to be as convoluted and layered as possible because it's chaotic right whether they were unconfident in their own prowess with their vocals or they just thought it made for a better song either way i think it works and it's something that other bands i think will come to adapt after the release of this album so as i said this was the first song that i heard by taking back sunday and it starts with that maybe not to everybody, but to me, it still holds up that line. So sick, so sick of being tired and so tired of being sick, which is just classic emo pop punk. I loved how they twisted that one on its head. Right. It's fun. And it seems kind of cliche by today's standards, but I feel like this was probably one of the first really great wordplay lyrics of this genre. And then later they say, so obviously desperate, so desperately obvious. It was like they came up with one and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, we could do this with anything. It's like those pictures where if you flip it one way, it's a beautiful woman. And the other way, it's an old hag. Yeah. (laughs) Or I love those. What are those called? Great question. Or it's a vase or two people kissing. Yeah, I remember that one. Optical illusions, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's all they are. I think that's a... 
good general term for them. Yeah, it's like when you look at those things with your naked eye, you see one thing, and then when you flip it and <laughs> you see a totally different thing, you know? Naked eyes can be deceiving. Ask in naked ears. Yes, they can. <laughs> naked. Speaking of eyes and ears, so this song they talk about hazy eyes. Is that a drug reference? Are they talking about somebody with bloodshot eyes because they're drunk or hungover or high or what did that mean exactly? That's how I always took it. I think we won't stand for hazy eyes anymore. I think whether you're the person that is drunk or a drug addict, whatever, you're either sick of living that way or maybe it's a friend of yours that you're kind of trying to help them change their lifestyle. So, you know, we're not going to put up with this lifestyle anymore. We want you to get past your hazy eyes, keep a clear head going forward. I think you could listen to the song a couple times through and just assume it's about a breakup, but it's kind of like you're breaking up with a drug or an addiction or an obsession. It's you trying to make that split because it's unhealthy. Like you're in love with a drug and you're trying to find a way to get over it. Is that what it is? You think it's like, oh, you're just sick of being messed up all the time you're sick of being lazy and complacent because you're just melting into a couch 24-7. Is that kind of what you got? I think the last verse of the song, or maybe it's a that's the other thing. It's hard to tell the chorus from the verse a lot of the time with these songs because everything's just so interwoven. But they do say he's smoked out in the back of the van, says he's held up with holding on and on and on. So it kind of sounds like it's somebody that maybe wants to stop the lifestyle that they're living but they just need a little bit of help. I also listened to this when I was 12, so I really had no idea what hazy eyes were in terms of... <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of us did. Like drugs or alcohol. And now, not saying we've lived too much of a rough and tumble lifestyle, but the eyes are always kind of a dead giveaway for people that might be um, using or on something, I guess you could say. Back then, I just thought that the guys in Take Back Sunday were always very sleepy. Yeah, maybe they left their contacts in overnight or something. Yeah, yeah. they have a little pink eye action. I'm so sick and tired of you guys farting on my pillow. <laughs> you think maybe this is just about conjunctivitis? Yes. <laughs> the other thing to mention, the song title, You Know How I Do, it's a reference to a movie called Made, which starred Vince Vaughn and John Favreau in which Vince Vaughn's character Ricky Slade says, you know how I do throughout the film. I think they're both like these wannabe gangsters who are trying to fit in and trying to be tough guys. And that's his big thing. Like, you know how I do. Right. I've never seen it, but I know it's a reference to that. And one thing I meant to mention when we were discussing the themes is similar to Fallout Boy, Taking Back Sunday, they're big into pop culture references. So a lot of their song titles also have nothing to do with the content of the songs and are just pulled straight from movies, TV shows, things that they saw in the media at the time, and they just turned it into a song title. Right. I do think that's a pretty cool aspect of this band as well. This was a weird time for Vince Vaughn movies. It was kind of before he found his wheelhouse with like Wedding Crashers and Old School didn't Vince Vaughn and John Favreau do a lot of sort of low-budget movies together back in the day that have since become almost cult classics? Yeah. You said that a character in that movie was called Ricky Slade? Yeah, that's right. 
That's actually the name of a Penn State running back that I think just transferred to another team. Really? Do you think his parents knew about this movie when they named him Ricky Slade? Maybe it's who he's named after, yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's a Taking Back Sunday reference. It's a cool name, if I'm being honest. It's a really cool name. That's all I got. Well, I think what's cool is these references to pop culture that they have are definitely lesser known. And you know how I do is not an obvious reference, but it's something that if you're a fan of cult classic movies, you might pick up on that. But probably not a lot of people do. And I think that's what's cool. I had to dig around to actually figure out what some of these song titles meant, which was great. Song number two is Bike Scene. Here's the first one in the album where I believe it's about a relationship ending poorly. It reminded me a lot of Newfound Glory song Singled Out that we covered, where it's about a person that you love and a person that you're very close with suddenly becoming your worst enemy. And they talk about that person as if they are an enemy now. Yeah, Singled Out, my favorite Newfound Glory song. (laughs) That's right. It's another one of those songs where On one hand, you are upset with or you want to hate the person that you're dating or about to break up with. But on the other hand, you equally blame yourself. So the chorus of this one is, I want to hate you so bad, but I can't stop this any more than you can. You're just conflicted. Yeah, exactly. And Newfound Glory had a similar reference in that song, Singled Out, where they say something along the lines of, I can't believe you said those horrible things about me. This is almost the exact same line. Right. Why do you have to go and make me say those things? That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the comparison between those two is actually pretty cool. I also saw this as like the typical life cycle of the classic high school relationship. It's like it starts off really fun and casual, which in the song at the beginning, it seems like a very laid back, no commitments type of relationship. And then it suddenly becomes very serious. Now you're dating this person. You're getting very close with them. You're sharing intimate moments with them. And then towards the very end, it's like, okay, total crash and burn failure is now a disaster and you have one more enemy in the world. It follows that life cycle and you can track it through the song, which was kind of a nice little touch. It was. And the layering on this song just makes it so much more devastating. Like you have Adam and John singing and screaming over one another. And if you just look up the lyrics, like you can't tell who's saying what. It's just externalizing what's going on in somebody's head when they're going through this type of moment in their life. There's just this chaos. It's screaming, yelling, it's my fault, it's your fault, this is all wrong. You got me right where you want me. Didn't want to mean this much. Like There's just this chaos that's going on. Yeah, it mimics that sort of angry passion that you would feel in a relationship like this. It captures that sort of horrible energy. And there are those moments in relationships when you have a fight and you're just not making sense anymore and you're just kind of screaming or talking loudly. And then you kind of realize that... Screaming or talking loudly? Or. Either or. But you kind of realize that this is not going anywhere. Can I put you on the spot for a second? Sure. This is one of the only songs in the album where I either didn't know 
what the title was a reference to, or I couldn't figure it out and I couldn't find it. What do you think bike scene means? And it could be the fact that it just has nothing to do with it because there are a couple songs where the title literally has nothing to do with the content. But do you have any sort of idea on that? I was thinking about that. Maybe other than Michelle Nolan singing on it, maybe she got to choose the song title. <laughs> I don't know. And she's an avid cyclist, do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it a reference to like a scene in a movie? Off the top of my head, I think of the Sandlot when the rich kids come into the Sandlot on their bikes. Oh, yeah. Whether it was a reference to that or some other scene in a movie like a motorcycle scene or a, a bicycle scene, maybe like James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause. To answer your question, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was a long, long-winded way of... I like your theories, though. There's a couple good ones in there. Michelle got to pick it. Well, I always think of like a scene in a movie, so I don't know. Yeah, it's cool. Maybe there's a specific bike scene that they're talking about from one of their movies, and it happens to be very chaotic and very aggressive. It could be. I did try to look it up, but I couldn't find anything, so... You gave it the old college try. Thanks. Track number three... And by the way, I just want to point this one out. This one is one of the most incredible song titles of all time. So very emo. Cute without the E, in parentheses, cut from the team. Whoever came up with that is an absolute genius. This song is my favorite song on the album and is my favorite Take a Max Sunday song of all time. Wow. Yeah, I kind of hate doing that with the really popular ones because Q Without the E is one of their all-time most famous songs. There's a handful that you could probably say are the most famous, but I think this is definitely up there. But this one is just, I loved it back then. It's still so catchy to me. And it's just an awesome song all around. And so this one is my favorite. This is a good favorite one to have. My favorite track is later in the album, but like you said, this was probably the first big single that Taking Back Sunday put out and was one of the ones that I gravitated towards when I first started listening to this band. It's so edgy and there's so much going on in it. And some of the themes are actually extremely dark. Like you could listen to this song a few times and be like, ooh, I can't believe they, they said that. But it's about a guy who finds out that his girlfriend is cheating on him. Right. I don't know if you can really argue against that. The very first line is, your lipstick, his collar, don't bother, Angel. I know exactly what goes on. That's a classic, like, the guy finds the article of clothing with the perfume in it and the makeup on it. And it's like, okay, she's busted. Your lipstick, his collar, don't bother, Angel. I know exactly what goes on. I also don't really think that ever actually happened because I don't think that that's like how somebody would find out that your girlfriend was cheating on you in like the 1950s. 
I know. It's like the classic way of that happening. <laughs> it's like Don Draper's wife finding out <laughs> that yeah. he's having an yeah. affair. <laughs> and I love how in the TV shows, it's like a perfect lipstick mark. Like it has every defined edge of the lips. Yeah. It's like, you're so stupid for cheating, but she's so stupid because you just completely missed your neck. Yeah, she just kissed his pocket square. Mwah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That is so bizarre. I always thought that first line was, your lipstick is calling. Don't bother Angel. Mm. Do you know how like when you find out what a line actually is and you just think you're so stupid? It's like, how could I have thought for literally... 15 years plus that this was the line i can honestly say that i've done that for every single one of these episodes so far there's been at least one line in one of these songs where i was like oh wow i'm stupid i've sang along to this song like very loudly like shouting the wrong lyrics which frustrates me (laughs) and you know somebody heard it and was like oh god he doesn't have a clue so it's your lipstick, his collar, which, as we just discussed, is a stupid 1950s premise, which they shouldn't have done at all. But I thought your lipstick is calling is like a reference to she's calling him while doing her lipstick and going out with somebody else. That's what I always thought. Mm, okay. Yeah, so that could still make a lot of sense. It makes just as much sense as some stupid broad kissing his collar. <laughs> <laughs> and then him like, whoops, I, I forgot. <laughs> Oops, I left this out. Honey, you take my shirt for dry cleaning. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute, what's this? <laughs> yeah, I, I never quite got it. But it is a very specific and obvious way. Like, we know exactly what that means as soon as we hear it. We're like, okay, somebody's caught cheating. So it accomplished the job at least. Right. Also, something we really haven't seen before is we've talked about pretty hard themes like death in Newfound Glory and in Simple Plan, and in Blink. But Taking Back Sunday definitely goes a step further, and I think in this one especially, there's a very dramatic reference to this altercation. And it even sort of dives into the topic of the lead singer threatening to commit suicide, which obviously is extremely dark. But the lines like, well, which would you prefer, my finger on the trigger or me face down, down across the floor? It's like, okay, you know exactly what that's about. You betrayed me, you stabbed me in the back. Maybe this is my only option. Right. That's very intense. And he's blaming her. And he's blaming her for driving him to something potentially drastic. Yeah, this song is definitely very intense and very escalated for the purpose of writing this song. Well, it was supposedly about an actual relationship that Adam, the lead singer, had. And I would imagine that he was probably cheated on, and this is what he thought at the time. He thought his life was over. He thought there weren't a whole lot of options for him, and he felt like if he couldn't be with his woman, then that was the end. And so he makes that very clear. That's tough. I've never been in that position, but I'm sure it's uh, got to get back out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, get back out there, sport. Maybe that's why it's cut from the team. Is this just a baseball reference? It could be. It could just be like a middle-aged dad <laughs> reference. <laughs> well, it's almost like his dad is like, hey, Adam, you struck out once, but you got to get back out there. Get back on the bicycle, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been, if we're being honest, I don't think either of us have really, that's not true. I don't want to undermine what you've done in your sports career, but 
in my life, I never really played sports past grade school. And I know you did crew, but have you ever been cut from a team or have you had any adverse sports experience in your life? Oh, yeah. I've definitely been cut from teams. I've tried out for a couple crew teams that I've been cut from. And so I know what that's like when a coach pulls you aside and you've spent weeks trying out for something that you really wanted to be a part of. And then it's like, oh, nope, your dream's over. Uh, yeah, that's happened plenty of times. So yeah, I'm no stranger to that, to that unfortunate situation. That does suck. And it sounds like you're really not that good at being a coxswain if you've had multiple experiences of that nature. <laughs> I'm literally the worst. <laughs> I think going back to our sports careers, you and I were actually studs in middle school soccer. We were all-stars. We were the MVPs of our middle school soccer team. And so, dude, we were rarely cut from any teams. We were like the top of the top back then. We were all-stars on the soccer team. And I know you've discussed before how our statures kind of reverse themselves from grade school to high school. <laughs> like you were the short and chubby kid and I was the yeah. tall and skinny kid in grade school. But you played goalie in soccer and I played sweeper. So we probably should have yeah. reversed those. Like, Yeah, I don't know how we ever ended up playing those positions that we were not meant to play. But we were great uh, soccer players. <laughs> I think we went like <laughs> one in six every year. <laughs> Thinking about some of those games that we played, oh my god, we incredible. We split games with Waldron and Anchelay. Yeah, and then we got smoked by Norwood and Nazareth. <laughs> we sucked, dude. Yeah, I remember that vividly. It was co-ed too, so it was like, which is great, don't get me wrong, but there was this one girl on Nazareth that was like, she was the best soccer player that I think we ever played against. She was insane, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think her name might have been Katie, so shouts out Katie. She's definitely a subscriber. Yeah, but there was one play that I remember at our home field. I was the last defender before the goal, and I was trying to stop her from scoring because she was going to score. And I just gave her a slide tackle, and I got a yellow card. Yeah, I remember that. I don't even think the refs had yellow cards. I think he was just like, oh, that's a yellow card. Hey, fatty. Nobody got yellow cards. <laughs> I remember like, that. You took her out. You're like, I, I don't was care. Like, not trying to hurt her or anything, but like. I just slid into her, so. I have so many memories of breakaways because our team was so bad. <laughs> so it was always you chasing somebody down and me having to make a decision if I was going to charge the person or if I was going to stay home and, like, attempt to make a save. But they knew all they had to do was just chip it right over my head because I was four foot five. <laughs> also, like, imagine thinking that any of it mattered. Like, it was just like. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was big, though. Dude, that was like, that was our World Cup. Shouts out to Steve Montgomery, who was an Angela soccer player. I'll never forget. Angela had two girls on their team. And there was one game at Angela where, same exact situation. They got past all of our forwards. They got past our midfielders. They somehow got past you. And it was me somehow. and this girl. And she was charging. And I remember like, all right, guess I'm running out. And I sprinted and I dove at the ball and I like decked her and she went flying and like kind of got hurt. And then later in the game, there was another girl. Was it Charlotte? Yeah, it was. It was um, Pat McGinnis's cousin. Oh, was it really? I think so. Yeah. Well, so then the same thing happened to another girl and I did the same thing. Like I ran out and I like put my shoulder into her, grabbed the ball and the ref was like, I, I think that's legal. Okay. Like you're the goalie. And then a couple years later when I was in high school at the prep, 
I was talking to my good buddy, John Scanlon, who went to Anchelay, and we just were talking about sports we did, and he was saying he played football, and I was like, oh, I was the soccer goalie. He's like, wait, were you the guy who, like, tackled two of the girls? Dude, the next day, everybody in school was talking about how, like, the Gwented goalie was a savage dude who was, like, taking out girls. <laughs> and so I apparently had a reputation at Anchelay, and the one girl was John's really good friend. Her name was Charlotte. Yeah, Charlotte, yeah. I remember her name because everybody kept saying Charlotte. I'm like, oh, I love good Charlotte. But yeah. <laughs> we're going to post a picture in the show notes of like our soccer team picture showing how intimidating you were in the eighth grade. Oh, so intimidating. Yeah. If you weren't intimidated by the memory book photo, you will be by <clears throat> me in soccer uniform. This must have been seventh or eighth grade, I guess. This Anchley game must have been legendary because I remember that same game. There was a kid on Anchley named Cole, and he had gotten past me, but I was chasing after him, and I gave him another slide tackle because I was... I remember that. You were a dirty player. I wasn't dirty. That's allowed, dude. I was just like, first of all, oh, hold up. You don't have one of these, do you? Somewhere, yeah. Oh, no. That's for being the, the best soccer player. No, I don't have that, but that's only because they had to give me the best lacrosse one. Yeah, so anyway, this kid Cole was sprinting towards the goal, and I race up behind him I gave him a slide tackle and then I remember the ball just kind of like rolled right to your feet and you just looked up at me like ah yeah <laughs> well yeah I made a great save you made a great save those were some fun times but you know what some times weren't fun oh no I don't like to talk about this often but in grade school I was a tri-sport athlete so I played soccer basketball and baseball oh I know you were quite a legend part of that was I was the tallest kid Pretty much from like fourth or fifth grade on, I think I grew to 5'11 in fifth grade and then I didn't grow another inch for the rest of my life. You were always one of the tall kids early on. So if you factor in the the aspect of me being tall with the fact that I can shoot a layup, I was a pretty good basketball player back in the day. Fifth grade, that was the first real year of sports. I was really excited to try out for basketball, but as it turned out, my family's vacation was during basketball tryouts you know the story of Lou Gehrig and Wally Pipp right no the day Lou Gehrig got his first start was the day that Wally Pipp called in sick and then Wally Pipp never started another game again and Lou Gehrig died and Wally Pipp is still alive to this day (laughs) no Wally Pipp is now 147 years old (laughs) so I missed tryouts which was fine I thought it is what it is I missed tryouts this year I'll get them next year Come to find out, I've been offered a single tryout. I've received an exception. Wow. I can still try out for the team. You got the LeBron James treatment over there. I did. I don't want to name any names, but it was a teacher with two first names who was coaching basketball at the time. Oh, you mean George Paul? (laughs) What? (laughs) I do. Great guy. Love Mr. Paul. But wait till you hear this before you actually decide if he's a great guy or not. I go to the gym after school one day. It's just me. And the basketball team is still there practicing because the team's already set. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the other side of the gym doing layups and jump shots with Mr. Paul, like proving my worth, thinking like, this is great. Like, I'm so happy I have this opportunity. I didn't make the team. Like I said, love Mr. Paul. Yeah, you were cut from the (laughs) team. Imagine telling an 11-year-old, oh, welcome back from vacation. Yeah, sure. Come in for your your, uh, tryout. We're definitely going to give you a chance. And then just immediately being cut. Well, maybe you weren't that good. But I made the team the next three years. 
Maybe you got better. I was an all-star in sixth grade and eighth grade. Hey, didn't Michael Jordan get cut from his freshman high school basketball team and that inspired him to never get cut again? That's just what happened to you. He didn't have to play me. He didn't have to like put me into the game. All you were doing was like just putting a freaking loser kid with scoliosis on your JV basketball team. Wait, did you have scoliosis? Yeah, I did. I worked through it though. Look at you now. I'm slouching to this day. Anyway, that stuck with me. So if you're listening, Mr. Paul, hope you're happy. <laughs> he still loses sleep over that. He's probably still coaching JV basketball. He probably never made the jump to varsity. And one thing I wanted to mention, Mike, the music video for this song is actually a spoof or an homage to the 1999 movie Fight Club, which was actually a favorite of Adam Lazara and John Nolan. So that's why they wanted to make the music video based off of it. And I think in the music video, Adam Lazara plays the part of Tyler Durden, who was Brad Pitt in the movie, right? Right. And then John Nolan is the other guy played by Edward Norton, whose name I actually don't even remember. So I think the whole point of that movie was Tyler Durden was Edward Norton's kind of conscious or mental state, I guess. Yeah. I don't even know if they ever even named Edward Norton in that movie because there's references throughout the film saying, I am Jack's broken heart. I am Jack's whatever. So I think either he was referred to as Jack or he might've never even been named at all. If I'm right. Yeah. I honestly can't remember. I Tyler Durden. I had on the tip of my tongue, Edward Norton's character's name. No clue. Spoiler alert. Brad Pitt is just Edward Norton's conscious. Like, Whoa, I know. Jeez. Sorry, let's leave a little bit. Of... Spoiler alert for those of you who have not seen Fight Club back in 1999. Yeah. <laughs> As we find out at the end of the movie, like everything that Tyler Durden does, Brad Pitt, that is actually Edward Norton committing those acts or saying those things. So, yeah, I don't think he ever had a name. But it's a cool music video and it it is based off that movie. And so there are some scenes that you would remember if you've seen the movie, which I know you have. Yeah, and it's good, and it brings you back to kind of that time period. I know that that was a favorite movie of a lot of people back in the day. And then the last thing I wanted to mention before we moved on, Mike, was a while ago, a couple years ago, I saw a live performance of Cute Without the E, but it was like an acoustic unplugged version, and I think it was from a live special called Live from Oren Sands. And Oren Sands is the Angel Oren Sands Center, which is, I believe, located in Manhattan in New York. And it's this old school church that they converted into a performance center, essentially. And it's one of the best, I think it is the best performance of Take Mac Sunday I've ever seen. And I've seen them live a couple times and I've seen countless videos of them, but it was amazing. They really took their time to perfect the harmonies and they clearly added different musical instruments. Like they had a string section for a bunch of songs. But their performance of Q Without the E was incredible. And I showed you before we started recording, and I think you were equally as impressed.
I don't want to be too dramatic, but I guess with this podcast and with these bands, we can kind of take dramatic terms at times. But like, I was nearly drawn to tears from this performance, which sounds so stupid. And I saying it out loud makes me <laughs> feel so embarrassed. So dramatic. But it was fantastic. And like, obviously, we're going to post this video in the show notes, but it reminds me of, I know we talked about Ben Folds a couple episodes ago with Newfound Glory and The Luckiest. He does a performance every once in a while with like a full orchestra behind him. Mm -hmm. And it brings a different sort of emotion to this music, which if you take it for face value, it's, you know, this corny emo pop punk music. But when you have the strings and that whole great orchestral arrangement behind them, it just becomes something so different. It takes on a new life. Yeah, it was cool. I had never really seen anything like that, and I kind of stumbled upon it a couple of years ago. And honestly, I watch it every few weeks because it's just that good. It's very inspiring. Yeah, it's good. And I encourage anybody to check out the entire performance because they, they do a whole concert in this really cool historical venue, and it's amazing. Track number four, Mike, back to our sports references. There's no I in team. You're a team sports guy, right? There's no I in team, but there is a me. If you rearrange the letters, yeah. But what do we know? We failed reading class, so. So there's no I in Team Keenan. I think we might be exploring this topic further down the album, but this is the first song where we see John Nolan responding to Jesse Lacey of Brand New 
coming at him in their song 70 times 7. This is kind of their clap back. Legend has it that Jesse Nacy's girlfriend cheated on him with John Nolan. And from there, a lot of really great pop punk emo songs were made. Yeah. Jesse Lacey and John Nolan were best friends and they were in bands together. Jesse Lacey was in Taking Back Sunday. They wrote together, they performed together. They were very tight. And then all of a sudden there was this romancing incident where I don't know if anybody knows the exact story outside of the guys in Taking Back Sunday and Brand New and probably a small group of friends. But as you said, rumor has it that there was some sort of cheating scandal and there's this big blow up moment. And for a while they were at each other's throats and they were writing songs about each other. And this one was John Nolan's song about Jesse Lacey. And the title kind of speaks for itself. There's no I in team. John Nolan thought that they were a team, thought that they were a band. They had this horrible thing happen. And then he's calling out Jesse Lacey for saying that he sort of abandoned the team, abandoned the band. I guess in a sense, Jesse did abandon the band. I mean, he left them, right? He started his own thing with Brand New. Yeah, that's exactly right. He did. But I think he felt like he was forced out of the band because of these personal behind the scenes things that were happening. He felt like he was stabbed in the back. So of course, if you feel like you're stabbed in the back, you can't stick around. That was Jesse Lacey's perspective. I always think what could have been, I guess, like if Taking Back Sunday had just been Taking Back Sunday with Adam Lazara, John Nolan, and Jesse Lacey, what would they have sounded like through their first four or five albums? Because they would have been an all-star band. Because Jesse leaves his band and makes his own band brand new, which is as good, if not better, depending on who you're asking, than Taking Back Sunday. So that's something I always wondered. Yeah, it was certainly a huge loss for everybody involved. I think Taking Back Sunday obviously lost an amazing songwriter, an amazing lyricist, an amazing singer, and Jesse Lacey lost the opportunity to be a part of this incredible band, Taking Back Sunday. Right. So yeah, the split hurt everybody. I saw an article posted, I think it was actually written around when Taking Back Sunday was putting out their third album, Louder Now, but Adam actually had a couple words to say about Jesse, which I think are kind of interesting if we have the time. So he said, this is from the article, it says, more than a decade after Lacey opened up his first LP with It's Funny How Your Worst Enemies Always Turn Out to Be Some of Your Best Friends, Things had simmered down, that is, until Lazara, a guy who circled the Lacey Nolan spat, singing lyrics directed at Brand New, but from a distance, got himself involved. When asked about the origins of There's No I in Team, he addressed them head on. I think Jesse Lacey is just a dick. He just sucks. He told OC Weekly he's not a good person. Wow, that's bold. It's bold, but we've kind of come to find out years later that He's kind of right. Yeah, he is, after all. Jesse didn't do a good job of holding up his end of the bargain, so at least from my perspective, I'm taking Team Nolan on this one. And there's that line that we'll hear going forward when we discuss Brand New's album, Your Favorite Weapon, but is that what you call tact? I swear you're as subtle as a brick in the small of my back, so let's end this call and end this conversation. Both Taking Back Sunday and Brand New sing those exact lines on their songs. I'm guessing that was a phone call that maybe John and Jesse shared 
in discussing this breakup or this fight? Yeah, the way I understand it is that they had a conversation on the phone about this incident. And I think they were basically calling out each other for betraying each other and for spreading rumors about each other. And that's what Jesse Lacey allegedly said to John Nolan on the phone. He was saying, wow, that's the least tactful way you can go about this, essentially just calling me out. And Lacey ended up putting it in that song. And then I think to make fun of Brand New and Jesse Lacey for that lyric and for using that example, that real world example, then John Nolan decides to essentially spoof it and put it in this song. Right. These songs, that's where I first learned what the small of your back is. Like the small of your back. Do you know the small of your back? Yeah. What's the big of your back? To the top of your back? I guess it's everything besides the small. <laughs> Because the small is just that little space between your tailbone and your spine, right? Yeah, right between your, your mid-back and your tuchus. That's right. So as subtle as a brick in the small of your back, I mean, that's not the most subtle thing ever, but it's not like... If you put a brick in the small of your back, you're going to feel that. Nothing subtle about that. True, but like, why that line? Like, I don't get it. I don't know. I guess he thought that was the nail in the coffin. I guess. It's tough, because I don't want to talk only about Taking Back Sunday and Brand New, but it's unavoidable with this album because they were at that point in their lives when this is what they wanted to respond to through their songs. Yeah, there are several very specific and very obvious references to this ongoing dispute. And so you can't ignore it. It's there in most of the songs. Could you imagine being that girl? She's the one who essentially caused this huge schism and she's referenced over and over again. She's essentially the impetus behind all this drama and all this hardship. Yeah, it's probably not easy being her. She's like the 21st century Patty Boyd, who was the inspiration behind the Beatles something written by George Harrison and also Eric Clapton's Wonderful Tonight. Whoa, how about that? Yeah, so whoever you are, thanks for two really great corny emo songs way back in the early 2000s. But also, thanks for ruining so many people's lives. That's right. <laughs> At least two. <laughs> well, that was one thing that I thought about was like, if this girl didn't exist and if this cheating scandal didn't happen, would Taking Back Sunday even be famous? They wouldn't have this album. It's just all about this feud. Yeah, I think you could say the same thing about Brand New. Like, this is what they needed. This is the basis of both bands. It's incredible to think about. Right, so... If Jesse had never left Taking Back Sunday, maybe they would have been this incredible band with three really strong singers and lyricists, whatever. But maybe they also would have just shrunk into obscurity, like a lot of other bands at that time probably did. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It could have gone either way. And we can dissect all the lines, Mike, but they're all very dramatic. They're all about how your best friend stabbed you in the back and he's the worst person. But I think... The one thing you do need to point out is the very end of the song, the screaming in the last few lines, best friend means I pulled the trigger, best friends mean you get what you deserve. And it's like ear piercing. The song kind of ends with Adam and John essentially 
threatening to kill Jesse. <laughs> so, yeah. It's very intense. Or kill yourself. I don't know. It could be one or the other. It could be both. I, it could be. It's very over the top. They emphasize best, not just friends, best friends. Yep. Which kind of makes them sound like 12 year olds. Hi, this is my best friend, Jesse Lacey. <laughs> we do everything together. We have snack time together. <laughs> There's so many sleepovers. Well, I think we'll see more of this, Mike. Let's, uh, let's strap in and get ready for it. Track number five, Great Romances of the 20th Century. It almost sounds like a, a concerto. There are always those songs when you look for a lyric like about summer or about going to college. I know I've mentioned this in the past, but this one, this is my September song, Keenan. When the leaves start to change colors and college football is ready to kick off, I turn this song on. The opening lyrics are, September never stays this cold where I come from. And you know, I'm not one for complaining, but I love the way you roll excuses off the tip of your tongue. Whether it's about September or not, it's probably not. It's my September song. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Didn't Newfound Glory have a September song? It was their apology song. I think they might have forgotten somebody's birthday. <laughs> Belated, yeah. When they talk about September came so quickly. <laughs> and he was on his hands and knees begging for forgiveness. September came so quickly and it also never stays this cold. Yeah. Yeah. Pop punk bands love September. It's a great month. Like, dude. Okay, so... It's a month of change. If you're being honest, if pop punk were a season, it would be autumn, right? Yeah, things getting darker and colder and, yeah. Trees dying. Yeah, absolutely. Would definitely be autumn. There are branches reaching towards heaven, screaming, save us. Yep, you feel a little chill down your spine for the first time after this wonderful summer. Yeah, that's right. Probably a couple loves lost. Does fall get a bad rap? I love fall. Fall's my favorite season. I love fall, too. I think it's my favorite season as well. No, really? I think so. Dude, that's huge. See, even in our relationship, I learn something new and fun about you every single day. I think I love fall because as a bigger guy, you can throw on a sweater or a sweatshirt. Have you ever listened to the Part of My Take podcast, Keenan? I have, yeah, a few times. One of the hosts on there, Big Cat, he's a bigger fellow like myself. He calls the fall personality season so everybody's wearing sweaters or sweatshirts or button downs and there's no more bathing suits or banana hammocks banana hammocks no more shirts off on the beach uh i have a whole drawer of banana hammocks us burly guys can cover up and just really let our personalities shine <laughs> can't you let your personality shine with a banana hammock you can but i prefer being fully clothed in my um, itchy Irish sweater. Is there a sweat factor to that too? Like you also don't like sweating in the summer? Because I have friends like that who, they're not bigger guys, but they're just, 
they don't like the summer because they just feel like it's when they're sweaty and sticky and disgusting. Yeah, I agree. And they prefer the fall and winter because they just sweat less. Yeah, I think you sweat less, you smell less. Yeah. Not like I like not like you smell smell, but like do you know the smell of going outside? Yes. Like when you come back inside, you smell like outside. Yeah. That's not as bad in the fall. Right. Like in summer, if you go outside to say mow the lawn or water the plants or something, you're going to get a little bit sweaty, a little bit muggy, and you're going to come back inside and want to take a quick shower before hopping into bed or eating dinner or something like that. Do you do a lot of plant watering around that house? This year, yeah, we do. We planted some new stuff. Oh, that's nice. So is it that you like listening to the song in September and in the fall, or it just reminds you of September? I think both. Obviously, the lyrics tip me off to September, but I think this album is a pretty good fall album in general, if that makes sense. I don't know if you feel the same way or not, but it just seems like another kind of song about a relationship or a breakup or in this case maybe even a relationship that isn't really taking off the way you would hope it was i think when they talk about september at the beginning it's a metaphor for things in the relationship getting chillier i don't know i read through it a couple times i listened to it i know this is a pg podcast mike but i was sensing a little more uh lewd a little more graphic references in the lyrics i can see that yeah, I think they were referencing a lot of romancings, if you will. Keenan, you're not telling me they're talking about the big S, are you? Capital S. Ooh. Yeah. Salami. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not about salami. It's about, you know, the S dash dash word. And I think it's about how, like the month of September, when things are very warm at the beginning and start to change a little bit towards the end and get cold and it's morphing into autumn, I think this relationship is also getting a little bit cold in that respect. Yeah, I like the way you think about that. I never really pictured it like that, but it's a transitional phase between the hot and steamy summer months and just the chilly, frigid, stay inside, do nothing months of winter. And this relationship used to be hot and steamy and now it's pretty frigid. And I think you can look at it that way if you really want to dig into it. It's clearly about the physical elements of this relationship and how it's not as exciting anymore. But I also think more broadly, it brings up the theme of, okay, this is just a relationship that's gone sour. And it was a relationship that's temporary. And it was just a fling. It was nothing that serious. And it reminded me of Sum 41 had that song, All She's Got, where it was about how he knows, he's aware that a relationship is 
going to be short-lived and there's an end date on it. And then we also, in that episode, talked about that song by SR71, Right Now. She may not be Miss Right, she'll do right now. I kind of got all that in this song. You can kind of tell that this is a fluid transitional period of your life and you just kind of want somebody to keep the bed warm, I guess you could say. And I know we've mentioned their titles in the past, but can I put you on the spot and ask you what you think the greatest romance of the 20th century is? I believe that was a TV show back in the day that profiled celebrity couples. And so I think it was a reference to that. So my guess is they're commenting on the fact that celebrity couples are often the shallowest relationships, the most short-lived relationships, very surface level, very showy, but really there's not a whole lot of substance to it. And I think the relationship in this song is the exact same. I'll take it. Thanks, man. Track number six. Ghost Man on third. Spooky. This one starts a lot slower than the other songs, and I think it remains slower than most of the songs on the album. It's not that edgier upbeat, but I think it's actually been described as more of an emo ballad. And the theme of it, it focuses specifically on the lead singer's difficulty with mental health, coping with depression at an early age, and what that feeling was like and how difficult that was. And so that's where the slow and solemn feeling comes in. Yeah, it's definitely one of the slower songs on the album, which isn't saying much because it does pick up. There's no reference to a ghost man on third in the lyrics, but that name has always stood out to me on this album. It's always made me think of like a backyard game, like maybe kickball or wiffle ball. Yeah, I thought the same thing. It's, I believe, a reference to when you're playing those games and you only have a small number of people, say you have a team of two on two, if somebody gets a third base and it's that person's turn to hit, you say, oh, there's a ghost man or there's a ghost runner on third. And so you essentially have this invisible person, this empty person, this fake person on that base. And so if you end up batting that person in, you get a run. I think he's saying that he feels as empty as that quote unquote ghost man on third. It's just a shell of a person. It's a fake person. Taking Back Sunday does have a song on one of their later albums, Louder Now, called What Does It Feel Like to Be a Ghost? So it's obviously a feeling that a lot of people can relate to. It also felt very much like a simple plan theme to me, how they were always talking about, this is the worst day ever, life is so meaningless, will anybody even care when I'm gone? This was kind of that. It was like about a very disturbed, depressed person who doesn't feel like themselves anymore. Right. 
There's a Beatles song called I'm Looking Through You, which always kind of, I always kind of thought of that song when I saw this song title. If you're thinking of like a ghost man, it's just somebody that's see-through and inauthentic. I'm sure everybody at times feels that way where they feel as though they might have nothing to offer or at least nothing of value to offer, I guess you could say. Right. Yeah. And I think Adam Lazar has gone on record to say that he did write this about a very dark time in his life where he wasn't himself. And there's a line that says, it's my fist versus the bottle. Okay. So you're drinking too much. You're angry. You're agitated. He was probably in a dark way, drinking a lot. Felt like he's hitting rock bottom. You providing that background with Adam going through a stage of his life where he's struggling with drinking. I kind of can feel the frustration through the lyrics. It's a lot of screaming on this one. It's a lot of back and forth, like we discussed before. A lot of confusion and chaos, I guess you could say. So I do this once every album, Mike, and this happens to be the song where it sounded very similar to another pop punk or emo song that I've heard before. Do you want to know which one it is? Sure. I think, <laughs> what if I just said no? <laughs> <laughs> okay, track number eight, Timberwolves at New Jersey. <laughs> this song sounds very similar to the My Chemical Romance song, Ghost of You, which also has ghosts in the title, which is even weirder to me. Huh. So the beginning of both of those songs, I listened to them kind of back to back a couple times right before this. They're very similar. I wish you would tell me about these beforehand so I could actually... No, I want to surprise you. <laughs> now... But I know that was one of MCR's singles. Well, here you go, Mike. Ghostman on third sounds like this. And the Ghost of You by MCR sounds like this. Can't you hear the similarity there? Now that they're lined up back to back, I can. And here we have the line again, the small of your back, dude. What is the small of your back? I don't even think the most renowned doctors in the world know the answer to that. I know this is stupid, but if it weren't for these songs, I wouldn't know what the small of your back was. As long as you're learning something, that's what's important. I am Jack's small of your back. <laughs> so, Keenan, from Ball kickball and maybe some baseball ghostman on third let's go to some basketball track number seven timberwolves at new jersey basketball what are you talking about mike this is about animals and a state just kidding i know sports <laughs> Girls, 
So for those stupid idiots. Oh, wait, hang on a second. Hang on a second. One. <laughs> Yo, do you need to come down? Go out the back alleyway to get your pizza booty. Moin says you have to go out the back alleyway. You have to go into the back alley, actually. He's going to eat some ice cream. I bet he's going to eat some ice cream. He's so piggy. <laughs> Pay up, piggy. <laughs> oh, dude, he just dropped it. <laughs> and he ate it. <laughs> he's such a piggy. Are you ready? Okay. <clears throat> Timberwolves? What? We have those in New Jersey? <laughs> What's that all about, dude? Hey, Keenan. I know what you're saying. I honestly don't know if this is a basketball reference or not. I always thought of the Minnesota Timberwolves playing a game at the New Jersey Nets because back in 2002 when this came out, I think the New Jersey Nets probably would have been taking back Sunday's basketball team of choice. So I always thought maybe the guys went to a game in the Meadowlands or wherever the Nets stadium was before, um, obviously, Brooklyn took over and we have the it was in Newark, the Prudential Center. Okay. So it was where the Devils play. That's right. You're exactly right. That's what this reference is. The actual story behind it is they were sitting around their apartment watching TV, and on the TV Guide channel, it said, the Timberwolves at New Jersey. And for whatever reason, they thought that was an amusing thing to see on TV. I think if you take it out of the context of sports, it's just like, wow, what a random thing to read. It took me 18 years to get it into the context of sports. I always thought it was just a thing where like, people might have seen Timberwolves in the woods of New Jersey or something. But Yeah, that's what I thought it was too. I thought it was a reference to the animal. Do you remember the TV Guide channel? Yeah, of course I do. Like before everything was just a TV Guide? Where it would just scroll and if you missed it, you'd have to wait minutes for it to come back around. Yeah. Who came up with that? I think our TV was channel 20. That was a TV Guide channel. I'm sure uh, some of our older fans, <laughs> hey, mom and dad. <laughs> hey, granny. They remember TV Guide when you had to plan out a week ahead what you were going to watch on the frickin' TV. Yeah, that was the worst. Sometimes I think we lived through some hard times, but at least we don't need to subscribe to some mini magazine to see what we want to watch on the tube, you know? I think people collect those, too. No, I think they used to make different issues like they would make different covers you know what i mean yeah like the magazine was always the same but they would make different covers to collect yeah they really pushed it and tried to make it like this cool collectible thing but at the end of the day it just said that week's tv listing so this song does sound a lot different than other songs in the album the intro kind of sounded like a ska song actually the guitar in the intro sounded very ska came in clean without any distortion it's very different from the more aggressive guitar riffs on the album yeah the intro is very catchy and i think the whole song is catchy throughout and i don't want to steal your thunder on this one keenan i know this has kind of been your thing but don't you do it michael there's some direct lyrics that relate to this and i think this might be taking back sunday's mosh pit song oh you done did it what do you think yeah i think you're right i think you're exactly right it's got that mosh vibe to it. I'd mosh to this. I got the mic and you got the mosh pit. Some of what I was reading made it seem like that was another dig at Jesse Lacey. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it could be a direct dig at him, but I also got the sense that they were talking about the New Jersey emo post-hardcore scene in general and a lot of the former members of the band, they were calling them out 
for being these these posers or these fakers that couldn't cut it with the band. There are a lot of lines in the song where they're talking about some guy's ability to attract girls. It's almost like a conversation between one guy who's really good at convincing girls to go out with you and a guy who sucks at it. And they're almost making this comparison between guys that are studs and ladies men to guys that are members of a successful band. And it's this message like, either you have it or you don't. Like, either you can attract girls and pick them up or you can't. Either you can make it and take them back Sunday or you can't. And so they have this weird comparison like, these guys are basically as useless as guys who can't get a girlfriend. I'm reading the qualifications and I think we probably meet the mark. So it's <laughs> yeah. literate and stylish. Kissable and quiet. <laughs> yep. That's what girls' dreams are made of. So so you're just, what, able to read and cannot um, wear baggy shirts? <laughs> yeah. That's it. I kind of love that because that kind of goes off of what guys think girls want. And we will come to find, if we haven't already, oftentimes what guys think girls want is incredibly wrong. Yeah, 100%, well, 99% of the time. Kissable and quiet. I can do that. I can just, like, shut the hell up and, like, let you kiss me if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, according to Taking Back Sunday, that's all it takes to attract a girl. It's like that MXPX song, Chick Magnet. I kind of think of that one. And the music video, have you seen the music video for Chick Magnet? No. (laughs) Have you seen any music videos? I did not realize that the MXPX video for Chick Magnet was going to come up tonight, but... Yeah, that was mandatory homework. (laughs) The Chick Magnet in that song and in the video is the drummer of the band, who's like this bald dude, overweight with glasses, but all the girls love him. But it's it's like a joke that this guy is the epitome ladies man, like... Taking Back Sunday is talking about the epitome of the ladies' man, which turns out to be this quiet, kissable dude. Just not a freaking a-hole. Essentially, yeah. This album is quite violent if you actually read through all the lyrics. The bridge of the song is, This is me with the words on the tip of my tongue and my eye through the scope down the barrel of a gun. Remind me to never act this way again. Jeez, man. It's a good thing that these guys were a famous emo band because (laughs) if they were just normal people saying these things to like family members or friends or at work or something, uh, they'd be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Thank God these guys didn't have an impression on millions of 12 year olds back in. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Good thing they had didn't influence an entire generation of like middle school kids on a lighter note. Going off of Timberwolves at New Jersey, that reminds me of Kevin Garnett, the best Timberwolves player of all time. You love Kevin Garnett. I love KG. That's your boy. Thinking about eyes on the scope of a barrel of a gun, did you ever see that movie Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler? No. On Netflix? It's on Netflix now, but you should check it out. All right. Hold on. Can we pause real quick while I watch it? 
<laughs> I will say this. So, so Kevin Garnett actually stars in the movie. He did a great job. He was a pretty great actor in that movie. What was his role in the film? It was as Kevin Garnett. Oh, it was just a cameo as himself? But on the Boston Celtics. And the movie focuses on a game when they're playing the Sixers. Whoa. So a little local flavor. Did they have any real Sixers players in it? Was like AI in it? Yeah, they, they pretty much just showed video clips of the game. Oh, really? Yeah. What time period was it? I think it was probably around 2012. Oh, so when the Sixers were... They were not good. It was when yeah. Elton Brand was still on the team. He was like our best player. Right. And now he's our general manager. Go figure. But Yeah, well, he was like 47 years old that year, so... Yeah. In the sense that this song is very intense and very melodramatic and over the top, that movie is kind of the same. Mm. You will watch that movie and just feel, if you've never felt anxiety or like really being stressed out in the past, that movie will just really put your head in a crazy mind space. So mm. check it out when you can. It is worth watching, but. Yeah, let's, um, let's just pile on the anxiety and stress real quick. Yeah, the end will leave you kind of flabbergasted. Is that a good plug? It should have been nominated. He should have been nominated for Best Actor. It should have been nominated for Best Picture, but it got snubbed. This episode brought to you by Netflix and Uncut Gems. Available now. Track number eight, The Blue Channel. TV reference? How is it a TV reference? TV channel that's blue. Oh, the blue channel. <laughs> yeah. What did you, what did you think? I, I what? don't know. <laughs> How is this even a TV reference, dude? <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> I don't know what that would be, but yeah, right. That's the thing. It's like, which channel is blue? I don't know. All I know is that it's my favorite Eiffel sixty-five song. <laughs> I'm blue. So I've always loved this song. I really like the piano intro. My family's really big into Disney World, as you know. I don't know if everybody knows. Oh, everybody knows. We go there pretty often. And this always kind of reminds me of a song that would be, at least the intro, would be a perfect song for the soundtrack of like Epcot Center. How many times have you been to Disney World? Probably as old as I am with the two-year handicap. Couldn't you have just said 27? <laughs> why would you say it like that i haven't been since january of 2019 can i ask you a question about your trips to disney world sure when you guys go to disney world do you typically do the same things or similar things every time or is it like a different agenda and a different itinerary every time you go 
we always kind of compare it to people that go to the beach every year. It's like we're not doing Disney World the same way that a family of four with like a six-year-old and a four-year-old would do for their first trip. We buy our tickets to the parks and we go ride the rides that we want to go on. But otherwise, it's mostly going out to eat and chilling by the pool and just kind of relaxing, you know? You kind of have a set formula. Right. So people that think we're idiots because we go to Florida every year, which, you know, whatever. That's fine. Hey, haters are going to hate. But I hate sitting on the beach, so I couldn't imagine doing that for like 10 days straight. So, Yeah, it's a lot. Guys like us get fried. So why do you think this song reminds you of Disney World? What, what makes it a quote-unquote Epcot type song? So Epcot is like the educational park, but as you get older, you actually find out that it's the drinking park. Half this park is essentially dedicated to just drinking in every country around the world. Oh, that's where that is. I didn't realize that was in Epcot. Okay. So Epcot is half Future World and half World Showcase. So World Showcase is just... Future World is what I remember. And I remember being very boring when I was little. It was boring when you were little. The best part about Epcot has always been the fireworks. But as you get older, it's like, you mean I can go and get a Guinness in England, a glass of wine in France. So that's kind of the allure as you get older. But if you ever search on Spotify for like Epcot music or soundtracks, back in the 80s, there was a lot of instrumental and kind of techy, like synthy kind of music. And that's just what this reminds me of, at least the introduction. And so is it just kind of like filler music, almost? At Epcot, yeah, it's just like background music or music they would play throughout the park. That's interesting that you say that because when I was doing some snooping around on the internet, I found out that Adam Lazaro once said in an interview that this song was written and included on the album simply to get enough songs to fill a record so that they could go on tour. So he basically openly admitted that this song was just filler. It wasn't a standout song. It wasn't going to be their lead single. They just needed to fill time. And it's kind of funny because we reviewed an album by Sum 41 called All Killer, No Filler, where they specifically point that out that nothing on the album is filler. And Adam Lazara admitted the exact opposite. But here's the thing. like I wouldn't think of this song as quote-unquote filler. Like I think it's a pretty decent song. Same. So I guess it's a testament to the band that they can write a great song on the fly just to whatever the quota that you need to go out on tour is. They did it, so... The theme of the song was similar to Cute Without the E. That song was about a guy figuring out that a girl's cheating on him and he hates her and he's threatening to do something drastic. This one is kind of the same. It seems like it's about a guy who realizes that a girlfriend is hiding something from him. He knows about it. There's a line that says, but don't worry, sweetie, because I already know. Well, this is the last night that you'll be keeping secrets from me. So... He's stabbed in the back. He feels betrayal. Okay, let's now dive into what this betrayal feels like. That's this song. 
Right. I do like those lyrics, and I like the ones that are like, uh, regardless, my pictures, they don't lie in your mirror. Yeah. That's another cool like college, high school kind of theme. Like you think of like the mirror that the girl's looking when she gets ready and she sees like her sweetheart in the corner of the mirror. Mm-hmm. It's like there's some other guy just like taped onto your mirror, not me. Yeah, exactly. It's stuff that you really don't ever think about again. So the last line of the song is actually pretty provocative, though, because through the entire song, he's talking about how he's on to her and he's done with her. And then at the very end, he says, I'll still wait for your call. It's like he's admitting that he's powerless against her. Yeah. That's kind of sad. Or maybe he knows that she's going to come crawling back to him. Maybe that's what it is. I'd be better with that, I think. Track number nine is You're So Last Summer. This one was one of their famous ones, still very famous to this day. Was it one of the singles? I imagine it had to have been. This was their second single. So actually, we didn't even talk about this before, but like Cute Without the E was not a single from this album. Really? I actually didn't realize that. What was the first single? The first single was Great Romances of the 20th Century, released on March 12th, 2002. And... I never realized that. Your So Last Summer was the second single, but that did not come out until over a, a year and a half later, September 16th, 2003. How can that be the case? That doesn't make any sense. I'm very confused by that. Either way, this was their second single, and this is my favorite song on the album. Whoa! Boom. Late entry. This has always been one of my favorite songs for lyrics. Like, they've always stuck out on this one, so... I don't know if you feel the same way, but... Yeah, there's the one line, but these grass stains on my knees, they won't mean a thing. Speaking of provocative lines, come on. Can't beat that. See, I always thought of it as more of like an innocent, um, just like falling down. Mm, Mike, you sweet, sweet, innocent child. Surely that's not what they meant. You're probably right, but... And we go back to what we discussed on Fall Out Boy when they refer to grown men as boys, so... She said, boys like you are a dime a dozen. Yeah, she has power over this person. We talked about that. And I thought the exact same thing. I do relate it to the last song, how that last line makes it feel like he's powerless against her. This entire song is how the guy has no power in this relationship. She feels like she's out of his league. He should be grateful that she's even given him the time of day. That made me think, like, how come the courting process for men is always like, trying to convince the girl to go out with him and waiting on the girl, waiting on the woman. It's always like that. And it's always like the girl has the upper hand. Do you feel that way? I've always felt that way. I do think the girl usually has the upper hand. I think in terms of these songs that we're talking about, we might be reliant on unreliable narrators. It's fair. These guys are probably, they're portraying one thing when really it might be another. But... In terms of real life perspective, yeah, I think 
the girls kind of always understand that they kind of have the upper hand. Do we just feel that way because we are the guys and we're just like, oh, this is so unfair and this is so hard and why am I bending over backwards for her? Because <laughs> we're just uncool, like normal guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like we actually have to put in some work. Yeah, there's a type of man and a type of woman that have the upper hand and I think we're just the type of man <laughs> that does it. Are you saying we're just... <laughs> Beta bitches? <laughs> I think we are. Oh, no. I think we're beta bitches, dude. I don't know. I think it generally just speaks to the fact that why are relationships always feel like a battle at times? Like when you're trying to date somebody, it feels like this back and forth battle. And then when you're dating somebody, it's a back and forth battle. And then when you're married, it's it's a battle. That's what this kind of got at. This girl's horrible to this guy, even though they're supposedly together. It is a struggle. And like the line that you remember most from hearing the song is maybe I should hate you for this. Yeah, exactly. There's an external struggle and then an internal struggle where it's like you're fighting, but then internally you don't even know if you should hate them for this or if this is all your fault and this is your doing. Totally, totally. And that sucks. Yeah, it's a strange dynamic for sure. Another line that's definitely worth pointing out, Mike, and I think it's actually the best line in the song and potentially the best line on the entire album is, the truth is you could slit my throat and with my one last gasping breath, I'd apologize for bleeding on your shirt. <laughs> That's notable because A, it's just gory and over the top, like everything else that they unreal get into in this album. Secondly, it's like, wow, this really is a broken man. Entirely broken and... There are certain lines when I know we're going to go back to songs that we review and say, at the time, I thought these were really good lyrics and I thought they really meant something. But this has always been a line from age 12, 13, whatever I was when I first heard it onward that I'm like, that line is just so ridiculous and so over the top. It's insane. But looking back, you're right. I love it. It's my favorite line on the album. The only thing that's ever bothered me about it is, like, I don't think it's a good enough rhyme. Uh, does it rhyme at all? It doesn't, and that's what kind of bothers me. Like, I feel like a lot of their stuff doesn't rhyme. It might actually sort of be their calling card. But I think they could have made it rhyme, because you could slip my throat, and with my one last gasping breath, I'd apologize for bleeding on your shirt. They could have said, with my one last gasping breath, I would apologize for bleeding on your dress. It would be a, a pretty good near rhyme, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that always just drove me crazy. I'm like, why did they say shirt instead of dress? It's kind of weird. We've picked up on several instances where there's a very obvious replacement that would yeah. make a song flow better or make it rhyme better, and they didn't pick up on it. And so I'm starting to think that it's probably meant to be that way. You might be right. But I don't know why. I don't want to keep harping on it, but going back to the grass stains on your knees the girl's wearing a sundress, you would get grass stains on your knees. Mm -hmm. Assuming you're wearing like a shirt and jeans, like there would be grass stains on your jeans, not your knees. If you got a grass stain on your knee though, and you were wearing pants and you had to point it out somebody, wouldn't you still just say, oh, I got a grass stain on my knee? I probably wouldn't point it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you wouldn't draw uh, extra attention to it? Um, excuse me, look at my grass stain on my knee. Has everybody seen this on my jean knee? I was thinking, like, I haven't thought about grass stains in a long time. 
since probably middle school soccer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even then, it wasn't really knees. It was just like your um, your shin guards, you know? They would get all smelly. Ugh. I do love this song, though, man. It's so good. It is a very good song. Your favorite? My favorite. Track number 10, the final track on this album, Mike, is called Head Club. What could that mean? Is that a golf reference, Mike? Are we going to stick with sports here? Can you believe this, Keenan? I've never played a round of golf in my life. Oh, you're missing out. It's so much fun. It's a bad time to kind of start golfing, though. But um, This is actually a great time to start golfing. So I've been to the driving range a couple times, but I just I suck so bad that I just never got the confidence to keep it going. Everybody sucks. That's the point. You just go out there to have a couple brewskis. I can do that. You hit the links, you got a little vitamin D. As a, I guess we could say, novice or amateur, is head club, is that a type of club or? <laughs> no, it's not. It's just two words that pertain to golf. I could do without the snicker, thanks. <laughs> no, I, no, I was snickering at myself because I was trying to say it was a golf reference and it's actually not. That is not a thing. But head, you would say that the head of the club like that is a thing. I don't head club is nothing. Okay. I was thinking like golf club head. Yeah, like your driver, I don't know. It's two things that could refer to golf, but together doesn't really make sense, but I do want to do a quick shout out to my good pal and golf buddy Aaron McCoy. He would really love this song cuz he's an avid golfer and clearly this song is about golf. Hey Aaron, we love you, buddy. Aaron, you keep practicing, man. You will get onto the PGA one day. But no, in all actuality, Mike, I don't think this is a golf reference. I think the song is actually somewhat important because I think the theme of it is them saying that they're sick about writing about the same topic over and over again. And as we saw, this entire album was about one or two topics sort of on repeat. There's a line that says, I'm sick of writing every song about you. So, okay, flip a coin. Is he talking about this ex-girlfriend that he hates or is he talking about Jesse Lacey from Brand New that he hates? I think it's important for the band to recognize, like, we wrote this entire album about one very singular thing, and it is getting kind of repetitive, and next album, we're ready to explore some new things. I can't wait for the next album. And one of the big lines in the song, Mike, is, don't call my name out your window, I'm leaving. That's actually kind of a cool line because it's a reference to a Johnny Cash song. He has a song called Understand Your Man where he uses that line. And it's about a guy who's fed up with his girlfriend or wife and he's walking out on her because she betrayed him or because she isn't in love with him anymore. And so he just decides he's done with it. And so that's a cool reference because they're saying the same thing. They're done with Jesse Lacey. They're done with his ex-girlfriend. Now they're ready to move on. I thought that was kind of a cool little reference. They actually are fans of Johnny Cash and listening to the contents of his music. Yeah, the man in black. You know what? I never thought we would talk about Johnny Cash, the man in black on the pop punk project, but he just seemed like a really likable guy. And he's pretty punk rock. I mean, he's probably the OG punk rock, honestly, like maybe country punk. But even in his later years, he covered 
Nine Inch Nails, he was always kind of on the cutting edge of just trying to put out good music, whether it was something he wrote or whether it was something Trent Reznor wrote. So I always kind of respect him for that. He was also famous for being very aggressive and therefore very emotional in his lyrics. And I think Take Back Sunday probably aspired to be that aggressive and that emotional as we see in the contents of all their songs as well. Johnny Cash talks about murdering guys, shooting people. I actually would believe it from him, though. I probably wouldn't believe it from um, two shaggy-haired dudes from Long Island. Yeah, but... that's true. In their skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Just as long as they don't have to run. <laughs> uh, jeans with the grass stains on them. <laughs> <laughs> they probably fell down like five times running away. <laughs> I think we have a pretty good idea of this one, but looking back on it, the themes kind of included breakups, maybe semi-makeups, breakups, breakups, and hating your friends to the point that you want to brandish a gun against their person. Yeah, I think what's notable about this is compared to other albums, the themes are a little more singular. There's only a couple topics they discuss, but they go all in on them and they get very aggressive and very dramatic and there's a lot of violent visuals. And I think for us in our lives, this is probably one of the first true emo bands that we listened to. They were definitely one of the first emo bands coming up in the early 2000s to help define that side of the pop punk world. It was like its own little niche category and these guys kind of owned that. And I think Taking Back Sunday and this album in particular inspired a generation of new, very emo-sounding bands. I would agree with that. I think they bridged the gap between bands of the 80s like The Cure, The Smiths, Joy Division, and then even earlier emo bands like Thursday's one that comes to mind. And they kind of made emo music more radio-friendly and more approachable for the common pop-punk listener, I guess you could say. I just remember them being very big at the time. Obviously, they still have a very large following and a very dedicated following. Yeah, it's one of the best. It's one of the most iconic. I think it defined our interest level in this genre, and we've been huge fans ever since, obviously. We still love this band. Keenan went to their concert as of last year. I really hope we can go see them again soon. Thanks so much for joining us on that journey. And once again, thank you for the continued support from all the fans out there. Again, we really enjoy doing this. We appreciate all the love. Thank you guys so much again for reaching out and all the positive feedback on the first few episodes. If you want to get in touch, give us some feedback on the episodes or maybe give us some comments on the albums we'll discuss going down the line. Hit us up at gmail.com at poppunkproj, Instagram and Twitter at poppunkproject. Patreon, if you feel in your hearts to give us a couple bones every month. I keep saying bones. I don't even know why. 
Just stop saying bones. It's so dumb. But it's patreon.com slash project. And I think Keenan might actually have something to say about the next album that we actually might be discussing if you want to actually say that, Keenan. Boy, that was terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. I could tell that you were about to do that, too. And I was like, this isn't going to work. Following that one, we thought it only appropriate that we discuss some brand new. Since we just had to hear Taking Back Sunday bash Jesse Lacey for 35 straight minutes. Let's hear Jesse Lacey's side of the argument. Next week, brand new is your favorite weapon. Thanks again for listening. We hope you had the time of your lives. Good riddance. And good night to my sweet prince. Mm-hmm.